Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. You're about to hear a podcast episode originally produced for the 2021 BC Organic Conference. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy at work on the 2022 conference, slated for February 25th to 27th in Kamloops. The conference will also once again feature a podcast, and if you want to learn more about that or the fun we're going to have in Kamloops, visit organicbc.org conference. Tickets on sale now. All right, talk to you at the end of the show. In 1994, the newly formed Certified Organic Associations of British Columbia identified the lack of reliable information on organic crop production as an important obstacle to the growth of the organic agricultural industry. From this realization grew a plan to publish a number of organic crop management guides. The Organic Tree Fruit Management Manual was the first in this series. It was written by Linda Edwards, an orchardist, entomologist, and a pioneer in the BC organic farming movement. It has been many years since the first edition was published, and over the last year or so, Linda has been planning an update to the manual with her colleague, fellow entomologist Tamara Richardson. So guest host Molly Thurston, herself well-versed on these topics as an orchardist and entomologist in her own right, arranged an interview with Linda and Tamara to talk about the manual's past and its future. So Molly recorded the interview, and then, the next day, we received the sad news that Linda had died. It came as a shock to all of us. Linda had been struggling with her health, but her sudden passing came as a real surprise to her friends, family, and colleagues. We feel lucky to have had a chance to talk to Linda before this happened, and luckier that her fruit tree manual is in the capable hands of her friend and colleague, Tamara, who will continue to work on the update as planned. Pretty soon, I'll release a short tribute to Linda as part of this podcast series. That should be live soon. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this interview she gave to Molly in late November. Hi, I'm Tamara Richardson. I'm the owner of Cornucopia Crop Consulting in Costume, BC. I specialize in organic crop management, particularly in the tree fruit industry. And I also do uh, research, and that's about it. Hello, I'm Linda Edwards. I'm my main job title these days is retired, but two of the things that I retired from, which are relevant to this, is that for about 20 years, I had a company that did orchard research and, and monitoring and advisory service, and then also then I became an organic fruit producer. But as I said, no, I'm, except for these types of jobs, I'm, I'm retired. So I am excited to have Linda Edwards and Tamara Richardson join me today. We are going to have a discussion about the Organic Tree Fruit Management Manual. And I wanted to just start off with asking you, Linda, about a little bit of history on the manual. Could you tell me about the first publication of the manual and what it was intended for? To go back in a little bit in history, when COABC was formed, it was identified very early that one of the big black, black services that was lacking for organic growers was guides for everything from plant nutrition to pest control that was specific for organics. And so they planned to do this, and I just happened to be in the business of doing pest management and and not and well, and other things as well. I'll explain more about that later. But, and so in 19, that was 1994 when the idea first came up. 
Then it became possible there was some government money that was available. And <clears throat> so I, the CRBC contracted with me it's a grand total of $1,600 or something like that. It wasn't very much. Anyway, to write one, an organic tree fruit management guide, which I started in the winter of 1987. And then in, and also I worked a bit during the rest of the year, but mostly I was doing my other work. And then again in the winter of 1998. And by 19, April 1998, um, it was ready to go to for publishing. Person though who made it really all possible with all the money raising, getting things done, was Hans Buchler, who's an organic uh, grape grower. And <clears throat> he handled all those things, and all I had to do was put down what I and unload my, my library in my brain to put it mildly. <clears throat> and I was happy to do that, and I wanted to combine it with all, all aspects of growing. So that's you know, everything right through from what trees you should pick right through to uh, <clears throat> how to harvest them. And the, first, the first one that came out was in 1998. Great. And Linda, as you mentioned, it really is an all-encompassing manual. You you talk about monitoring techniques, you talk about the pests in great detail, and you talk about nutrition and other things. How, you know, can you give us a, a bit of a sense of where you are coming from in terms of wanting to cover all those aspects, like where you had you had discussions with growers who were looking for this information and, and that was how it came about, or maybe you can kind of discuss that as well. All right. I, I grew up on a farm and I knew that just knowing about one aspect of the farm means it would go broke very soon. And the same when I worked in orchards looking for contracting with growers all up and down the valley, I could tell them how to control their mites. But if they weren't watering properly or didn't have any proper nutrients in their soil, it wouldn't matter about the mites. But you had to look at the whole operating system and adapt it to one, adapt all the parts so that they can work together as best they can. And so that was my approach. And that's why I did it. I didn't want... People didn't need somebody to tell them, you know, how many times to beat for paracilla. They needed somebody to tell them what other things would work for paracilla <clears throat> and when when to do it. And also not to grow trees with so much lush growth that paracilla could thrive on them. And so it goes. And that's interesting because I think you're referring to, to you know, some of the conventional methods of growing orchards um, may not apply to organic. What was the state of the industry at the time when you were writing the manual? How many growers were organic? Well, initially, in fact, I did a paper on that once for the Science Council of Canada. Um, before SIR, there was about only most 100 acres of organic tree fruits here in the Samil community. And though it was a good place to grow fruit organically, there were still some unsurmountable problems, <clears throat> such as glucodling moth being the main one. But then somebody came along with this wonderful thing called bean disruption. And by that time, I was a farmer here as well. I brought into Brian Mendel's farm, and I was part of his, his farm and family. And so I, and also the, the acreage, acreages are very small, five or 10 acres each. And 
such a it's so small it was hard to get enough volume sometimes to, to do anything so anyway I convinced Brian and to put out we had a hundred acres and that we would put that into organic transition and that with, as long as we had mating disruption it was going to work and I was also living in the smelting which is a very good place for things where you don't have many diseases and stuff so we did and then within three years there were 500 acres because when some other people saw that we could do it they did it too, and it's growing since then. I'm not sure how much it is now, but about half the valley is is organic tree fruits. And is that what your question was? Definitely, and and also, you know, I um, oh, I think how it's doing? Yeah, how how? Yeah, <clears throat> then <clears throat> as well as now, it's it's doing very very well. Um, much much higher prices, good returns. In the conventional industry, and it's well. Some somebody said the real ch- ch- uh, test to see whether an industry, farm industry, is doing well is what kind of trucks they drive, and how often they buy them. And the organic growers are way out ahead of everybody else. <laughs> no, it's doing, it's doing very well, and it was then too. Excellent. And, you know, it was interesting, Linda, last night I was having a conversation with Bob McCubrey, who we purchased Mm -hmm. our organic orchard from. And again, you know, referring to your Parasola comment, obviously a big part of the mentorship with Bob was around growing pears. And we often would talk about Parasola. And his uh, statement or, or comment that he would often bring up was, Linda always said, if we do this in the orchard, what else will happen? Can you <laughs> explain that statement a little bit to the listeners? Well, especially when going into organics. Now, these were obviously conventional growers that were becoming organic. But what what would you know, they would want to know what they needed for herbicides if they couldn't use Roundup? What what could they do about uh, leaf roller if they couldn't use glutathione and stuff? And so people, that's why they drove me to learn all that stuff. And we did a lot of research, too. When there's times when we could say, you know, this is what you've got, but I don't know what to do about it, then we would get money, research money. And by the time the company ended, it was more research and somewhat, it was much, as much research as it was monitoring and advising. And but Linda says, yeah, I've, I've heard that, too. Uh, I, was, I was out there. I was doing it and, um, and was willing to talk about it and answer questions, so... I guess that's how it got to be. No, that's great. And I think, too, you know, that's where I I want to um, go from the history into what are you and Tamara doing right now and bring Tamara into the conversation as well. The the book has obviously been a huge cornerstone piece of certainly many growers' transition from conventional farming into organic tree fruit management. And can you tell me a little bit about the process that the manual is going under now? Well, you know, it's 20 years old. And now when people ask me about something, they'll say, well, why don't you have anything about um, clear wing moth in your book? Because it wasn't around when I wrote the book. Also, it's amazing that Entrust was not around. Spinozas were not around when I wrote the book. So there had been a lot of changes. And so I would tell them what I knew now, but... but some and various people would say you should you should update it. And that sort of grew and grew until I said okay I'll do it. And Tamara agreed to help help me out on it because I'm not 
doing that type of thing anymore. And I know there's a lot of things that she does that I didn't, I never had to deal with even. <clears throat> she has more current knowledge. So um, she agreed to help with this. And I just spent the winter going through, we got hold of the... Um, we had to digitize the the original book because there were no um, computer copies anywhere. So we actually had to go through the process of cutting a book up, getting it scanned, and having the scan converted to text so that we could so we didn't have to type out the whole thing all over again. Um, and so yeah, so Linda's been reviewing over the last, I guess couple of years reviewing all of the sections and um, putting in uh, new information. I haven't really, really done much at all myself <laughs> yet and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get working on uh, reviewing everything too over the winter. So Linda, Linda's really been the one. Um, it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't but it digitized because I didn't know how to do things like that. So yeah, so that's interesting. So the original <laughs> copies of the book, Linda, were have, were they typewritten or have the original copies just been long gone for over no, twenty years? No. What happened when it was finished, and this is where Hans came in and made things happen. We had to find somebody to print it. The CYBC owned it. It was, their, it was in their name and that thing. But he found, he got funding, he arranged to have it, found a printer. Actually, the best one he got was somebody in Manitoba. <clears throat> but then time passes and there was no, you know, not too much promotion of it, but or either that people already had the book. So <clears throat> when we thought we were going to update it, I wasn't going to re redo the whole thing, which, I, you know, I typed on the computer, but I didn't want to start from scratch. So Tamara said, well, why don't we get it? And she just explained. And once I had that, it's easy to sit down every day and go through one section and say, that's changed, that hasn't changed. And I'm quite amazed how many changes there are. And that technology, too, I mean, does that mean you probably, will you be producing a digital copy of the book? That will be the, the book. We're, we're not going to get into printing it again. Okay. Most people use the Internet anyway. And if they don't, this will be a good thing to encourage them to do so. Excellent. And also, we can make changes more quickly that way, too. Yeah, For sure, it becomes um, much more of a living document. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you, um, when you talk about how many changes there are, and you said, Linda, it's surprising to see how many changes um, have happened in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the detail of some of those changes? You mentioned some new pests. What else has really changed significantly? Pests, materials, um, even to some extent regulations. You used to have to get some products. They had special registration that you don't anymore. Tamara, can you think of? Well, we've definitely got some new pests. You mentioned apple clearwing moss uh, previously, but spotted wing drosophila has also been another uh, fairly major one. Um, and climate change. Also. Absolutely, yeah. Number of changes due to climate change. There used to be an insect that was introduced into the smoking on nursery trees time and again, and this was in the early 1990s, and I identified it, of course, and said, well, in fact, it was bud moth. 
but you could you'd see the worms very rarely, but you would see them. But they'd come in on these trees, and they would pupate, and they never never showed up later. Found out that they were the spring frosts that we had were making a difference. Well, we're out here with all these big wind machines that we haven't turned on for 15 years now. We don't have spring frosts anymore, and bud moth just flourished and became one of the major pests. And that's really interesting to me because I think about 15 years ago when I started having discussions with you, Linda, and and others, and bud moth was a northern valley problem, not a south valley problem. That's what my book says. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And And it's a big south valley problem now. Yeah, it's one of our major pests and apples down here. But before it never was, it never was. And also, it makes us worry about some things where we think um, our climate change might make us more susceptible to some things that have been around but never became a pest. And one of the most notable is uh, uh, apple, apple maggot. Yeah, good point. And what about even things like, uh, you know, with climate change, I certainly am noticing a higher incidence of some of the pathogens and diseases. Apple scab, which, again, was a fairly minor problem in our area of the valley, has really exploded in the last few years. Are you seeing some of those trends as well? Yes. yes. Fire blight has gone up amazingly um, because it's a wetter, warmer climate. And how are you going to address problems like that in the new manual? Is Are you finding, are there new products available, new techniques available? Yes. And this is where I really need uh, Tamara's help because they're, they're products I haven't worked with. And we'd like to get yeah. more than just say that you can use this. What conditions can you use it under? What conditions yeah. should you use it under? And that's, that's the knowledge that Tamara is going to bring to this. Tamara, can you talk a little bit about your relationship to that aspect? You know, what are you doing in the field that you can bring this knowledge into the manual? Well, my the orchardists that I that I'm working with are actually dealing with them, obviously. So I've, um, you know, I mean, even in the ten years that I've been here, I've noticed, noticed a few changes. changes. And fire blight is a good example of that. Um, I haven't seen apple scab yet, though. No, not not here. Um, we we're looking but I haven't been seeing it yet. And I've just started working with clients outside of the similcamine. So I'm getting uh, well acquainted, <laughs> well acquainted well, with it. Um, but so what I, one of the things that I've been doing is I, you know, as my clients are facing some of these issues, I do my best to keep on top of what um, new products that have been armory certified are available for use um do my best to look up the efficacy of those from previous previously done research uh get my growers to test them out um sometimes we've been able to do um we've you know we've done a few research trials um so, so working, basically, basically working with the growers in the field to assess um, in our local environment if if some of these things these things do work. Uh, I do try and keep my eye on what uh, 
registrations there are in the United States um, as compared to Canada because they have a lot more options and their label their labels have a lot more props on them. So as you I'm sure know Molly as we deal with the minor youth meetings every year, getting some label expansions on some of these things for some of the pests that we're dealing with. So yeah, we're limited by what what we have available. I mean, obviously we want to be using IPM principles. Um, you know, so if we can prevent certain problems and manage them through, for example, like managing vigor or encouraging natural enemies um like to do that i don't want to just go into calendar <laughs> spring for have i gone off track here no actually i i want to just circle back to mara to the comments about ipm principles because i do think one of the biggest values that I have received from the management manual over the years is that it really is a textbook for IPM. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, your comments about not calendar spraying is so important. We don't want to get in on that cycle. So let, let's talk a little bit about maybe what IPM is, what it means to tree fruits. And Linda, maybe we could start with your take on that. And, and then Tamara, I'd love if you'd follow up. When sure. growers hire you to contract, they, they want to they want to have a good crop at the end of the year. And if you can do that by controlling pests and only doing that, that's fine. But you really can't. As I said, my background's farm kid and everything else. Everything's connected. And that's why my company is called Integrated Crop Management, not Pest Management. The insect IPM is when to spray and what levels and things like that. And that's very important. But it's only part of the bigger bigger picture. But you do it to get the information you need. It's a, it's a part of crop management that is needed for pests. But without the nutrient management and all those things, it might be quite meaningless sometimes. For sure. And Tamara, you know, you've said IPM principles. What are some of those principles? Well, in general, IPM is. Um, a decision-making process for management on the farm. And um, pest as Linda said, pest management is only one part of it. Nutrient management is also a big, big part of that as well. But IPM, okay, so basically there are six components of IPM planning, if you're going to get sort of formal and textbook about this. And these are prevention, which is, as I was saying, you know, any way that you can manipulate the environment to create favorable conditions or unfavorable conditions for pests. So that has everything to do with, you know, growing the right crop in the right place, having the right site, um, ensuring a proper nutrition and irrigation management. Um, and then identification, so knowledge of the issues that could potentially happen in your particular environment. So knowledge is, is key. The ability to identify pests and diseases, ability to identify, you know, nutrient shortages, signs of nutrient shortages or signs of nutrient excess, that's a major that's a fundamental component of that. So 
monitoring is another major component of that. So actually getting out there and looking. If you're just on a calendar, like many growers are, you could be spraying and you might not need to spray. And by doing that, you're getting, you know, you're getting rid of possibly beneficial insects. You're also getting rid of low levels of your pest insects, which would be feeding the natural enemies, you know, uh, getting out there and looking and seeing if you actually do have a problem, which is what you're supposed to do. I mean, the organic standard <laughs> requires you to be able to justify why you're using any input, right? It's, it's, meant, to, it's meant to be, intervention is meant to be based on monitoring essentially um yeah and then then making a decision right so you don't the the goal of this particularly yeah the goal of this in any system is you don't want 100 percent control if there's a way to use an economic damage threshold one should use that if they can these have it there's a lot of a lot of pets where we don't have an economic damage or economic injury levels and then that uh, you, you need to have some sort of action threshold at which you should apply some sort of treatment, but you don't always need to. So Linda, in, one of the great things in Linda's book, which I think has helped me a lot is, and been able to help my grower, convince my growers not to spray in cert- at certain times of year, is actually estimating, making a rough estimate of damage and quantifying that economically and comparing that to the cost and the time of actually applying an input. Um, Yeah, and then Linda's book has a really great breakdown of how you can apply that, those ideas on your, in your own farm too, not just tree fruit, any, any type of, any type of farm. Um, And then, yeah, and then so making the decision whether or not to apply a treatment and then What's really important is following up and evaluating the success of your treatment. So did what you do work? Did your management decision give you the desired outcome? And yeah, you can only evaluate the success of your program if you're keeping records (laughs) too, right? So, And I'm so glad you said that because as an agronomist, or horticulturalist, that is so critical to our future decision-making, but also to the many notes and pieces of information, the gems that you've put in this book, Linda, and that you're contributing as well, Tamara, is it's working with growers who have those great records so many times that give us, yes, that did work. Let's use that elsewhere. And sometimes you'd think you had something that worked. And it did because you didn't have the pest, but maybe you didn't have the pest in the first place. My big breakthrough after I established my company and didn't have many customers as I would like, but anyway, I got one in particular who was quite large and then managed to financially stay alive for a while. But then spring came and the growers I was working with were all getting ready to put on on their apples to put on uh, an oil spray. Now, this is a tough spray. It's the first spray of the season, so you've got to get everything up and running. And it was a high-volume dormant oil spray. And But everybody did it because there had been a time when red mites were so bad that it would ruin the crop for the year. 
and then someone did some research that showed that if you kill, if you um, spray the eggs just when they're just about to hatch, that would end the problem. So anyway, I went to this man's orchard and I looked and I couldn't find hardly any red mites. Egg, it was the eggs at that stage, and, and so I got my courage up and I said, "You don't have to put on any oil sprays." What do you mean? Everybody puts on oil sprays and it works. We don't have red mites as a problem anymore. And then you convince them that you really didn't have red mites anymore. <laughs> and that, that turned the tide right there because some people did it and some didn't. And it was so black and white, you know, that none of them needed to do it. So it's sometimes just finding ways to help people not do things as well. Absolutely. I have a hard time convincing new newly transitioned growers that they don't have to spray um, yeah yeah it's um, um i have people actually calling me asking me if they can do anything and i'm just like no they're <laughs> <laughs> calling they always think there's something they should do every week even if they don't definitely do following the calendar <laughs> one of the great things that i have learned from your book linda is about monitoring, in particular techniques and tools. And I want to ask both of you, you know, what do you have in your toolkit when you're going out to the field to make these observations, whether pest or disease is present? What are your go-to items? Well, first of all, usually a beading board. A lot of things you determine by tapping on branches and seeing what falls off and how many of each, whether there's uh, predators there as well as the pests. And then hand lens to look at some of the smaller ones. And a note, definitely a notebook. That's maybe one of your most important tools because no human being can remember all that detail that you would get and accumulate in one day of, of monitoring. And what, what else, Tamara? Well, I definitely, those would be my first um, three items <laughs> to mention as well. Um, your eyeballs. <laughs> yes. You know. Yes. Uh, your I just and and prior knowledge. I also use a lot of pheromone traps, you know, for different points in the season. So definitely traps. So traps. Um, in addition to what Linda said, definitely pheromone traps. But basically, the beading board, the hand lens, and a notebook and some prior knowledge. And having a discipline to handle all the information you're getting in. It's not enough to say there was a lot of leaf roller in an orchard. You had to say it 50 different places that I checked for it, which should have been, mm -hmm. it could have been. It wasn't. And what you really want to say, you have like 2% of your trees have leaf roller. It's yeah. a lot different than 30%. And that's what you use for decision making. For sure. And I think that's, again, going back to that idea of looking for an economic threshold or a, a threshold is so important because we're not looking for sterile or perfect. No. We, and we, in fact, we don't want sterile or perfect because there'd be there'd nothing, be nothing for the natural enemies to feed on if we nuked it. Nuked it. <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. I wanted to return to the idea of minor use and have some discussion about research uh, into new products. And I feel that both of you have really downplayed your role in how many products you've brought to our local growers use over the years, because uh, 
significant amount of research has gone into key cornerstone products that we're using in organic um, production right now in tree fruits, like pure spray green oil, like in trust. And I wondered if you could just both comment a little bit about what you've done with those products over the years and how they, they came to be part of programs now. Well, it can be. It doesn't even have to be new products. And when I first started working in the snow community, a lot of people had nectarines, which is a crop that I was totally unfamiliar with, and a lot of damage would be done on these on these new fruits as soon as they started um, forming. And Limtaps quickly told us it was earwigs that was doing it, and then what to do? Well, we could have gone out and put out poison traps or sprayed them or something like that. But instead, we, this is and this is where you take you take your problem and think it through. What do you do, want to do? You want to keep the, your wigs away from the fruit. What easier way to do it is put a band of they can't fly, so put a band of stick them special. And so there, that was it. You know, people in conventional growers sometimes still spray the trunks of the trees, but most of them use the banding. And the new products, when they come in, they have to be found to be. You can use them in, in Canada. And the big difference between Canada and the States is the States does not require efficacy trials, and we do. And that's the kind of work that Tamara would do and the kind of work that I did to see if something really did work. And did it work under organic conditions? And Tamara, what are some of the, the current opportunities or challenges that you see um, in this realm of, of product introduction or new, you know, new techniques and, and products? I I mean, I think we, it would be really nice to have something that was a different, had a different mode of action than Entrust and, and Diapol for some of our Lepidopteran pests and for things like spotted wing Drosophila and maybe the future brown marmorated stink bug issues that we might have because... I do worry, we do rely on these these tools and I do worry about resistance management. Um, and this is another reason why it's so important to be using IPM principles as opposed to just calendar spraying is because uh, you don't wanna be overusing an input and then we lose it because of the development of resistance and populations of pests. So I'd like to see that. Um, I agree with you really on that, that particular thing, Tamara. The, the nightmare is when do, what happens when entrust stops working. And it already has. There are some areas that already have resistance to some pests that have resistance to entrust. We need something that works in a different way that we can alternate to delay that. Yeah. And that's that's a very big problem. And you can follow the literature and you can hear about all these different things, especially for diseases and, and, and using uh, bacteria and things like that. But they, nobody's doing the research on them. And that would be something I would like to see in the future. And, mm -hmm. and it's doable to have a sort of a uh, <clears throat> small foundation makes money available to organic researchers or, or farmers um, to test new products. But not just people from government institutions or universities. 
being able to have access to that. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's a really good point, Tamara, that, you know, we we actually need very hands-on practical field experience. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing that we are sometimes lacking. However, both of you have very much brought to the industry is working with growers in real time mm-hmm. and real conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Methods as well as products. And then once you have them, what the timing and then all the other things that are part of that. Mm-hmm. How effective is it, right? Because just because, for example, if you've got like a p-value of less than 0.05, that doesn't necessarily, in your stats, statistical model, that doesn't necessarily translate into something that's actually going to be an economic benefit on the farm, right? Like the number of parasites and the <clears throat> insect parasites that have been identified that attack coddling moth, but they never control above a 50% level. And you, you've got a coddler, you've got one coddling moth in it or two. So it's not a worthwhile thing to, to use. Although we might do research on how to make it more. It's not enough to say it will kill 50% of the coddling moth. No, that's a good point, but there are definitely two open techniques that can be used in combination, and I think both Absolutely. of you. Have- yeah, and I and I, you know, I'm sort of bringing up. Um, I, I think that's what's needed for apple apple clearing moth as well. Hopefully, in the future, we've got a few more a few more tools. I know that this year, unfortunately, because of COVID, um, there's a researcher at. Canada, she was supposed to go look for parasitoids in Europe for their research. So, oh. and trust is great; it's a good tool, or the the trunk sprays are good. Um, the mating disruption is weak, but has some effect. But we need we need we need that's an example where we need multiple tools to manage because it's a very difficult. A difficult test. I think Tamara, that was a great example of some current research that was going on, and you know, definitely the integration of many tools and how organic growers can apply those, and conventional growers as well. And so, I just hope that as we wrap up the interview, we could perhaps talk about with each of you what what are you know one or two burning needs in terms of current research and extension in particular that is needed by the organic tree fruit industry. We're going to get this new pest called marmorated skin bug, and it may turn out to be like like the apple maggot fly and not suit our conditions, but we don't know that. And if it does come, we can't use all the pesticides they're using in conventional orchards. And it's a really bad pest. It's, it's going to get everybody on everything if it can establish here. But we would nice to have somebody doing some preliminary research so that we're not you know not taken too much by surprise and can move quickly in doing things you can so you can control it so yeah that's a great one thank you Linda Tamara do you have any that you want to jump in on so I see I'm going to sort of comment on your question uh that you've got on this document that you send us um so what do you see as current opportunities and challenges for organic tree fruit production so one of the things that I'm experiencing through my business is the massive increase in 
the number of people who want to transition yeah. from mm-hmm. conventional to organic. And I think with that, and I guess I'm maybe even speaking from an, from an economic standpoint, but industry-wide, I'd like to see quality standards maintained so we don't end up in the same situation as, for example, the conventional industry has with dropping prices. I'd like to see organic products be known for high quality and beautiful fruit. <laughs> and that requires knowledge. It requires communication. It requires it requires probably eventually and, and currently more skilled people in organic extension. And there are not many out there. No, that's true. So education and information for both growers and field personnel. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. I I think both of you have made some great points there. Um, And I really appreciate the focus on good education, but also on high quality production. And that is, such an important part of our industry and and when you think about the standard that was set initially quality has always been really a driving force I I just I want to ask both of you what do you think about little cherry virus and western x coming (laughs) well it was actually I found the western x down here (laughs) in nectarines um and I think I I suspect, although this is not based on anything other than a hunch, (laughs) so I didn't know much at all about Western X until I tested some nectarines here, and that put off some alarm bells for people. And I had to send those samples to a lab in Washington State to get... I wasn't even looking for it. So I was trying to figure out what was wrong with these trees that were dying. And I've seen similar blocks to that throughout the valley. And so anytime I I was getting frustrated because anytime I was sending material to the diagnostic lab in Abbotsford, I was getting inconclusive results. So I sent these materials to Washington State, uh, to the Prosser lab, and I got the positive Western X um, diagnosis, which has been around for a long time. Uh, I think it was detected in Washington State at first in the 40s. So I don't understand why anybody would think it couldn't necessarily be here if it's been down across the border. It's been known to be across the border for so long, but we just haven't tested anything here. We don't have enough facilities to do good diagnostic testing for diseases and viruses. So I suspect that we're going to, if we actually went out and sampled and did full panel testing, full panels of tests, we'd find a lot more things than we currently think are here. Does that make any sense? wasn't very articulate. No, absolutely. Um, I'm really glad that you raised two really important issues there. I think one is that we often don't know what we have until we really start to look at it. And Mm -hmm. Western X or X disease is a phytoplasma that, like Mm -hmm. you say, could be quite 
prevalent. We just haven't done the testing. And the second issue that you raised was around access to laboratories and the technical services that we need to support industry and mm-hmm. some of the, the issues and lack of um, those services. So, and that's you know, think, genetic testing that we need. We need PCR or elite, like we need that. We need to be able to. That, that's where you get a definitive diagnosis and quickly. Um, and quickly, yeah, yeah. And I may be, I may be completely wrong. There may be labs here that I could have reached out to to get that tested. When I was talking to Gail Cron and Bill McPhee, I don't think anybody tests for that here. No, you're absolutely right. wrong, Molly. Yeah. And I was trying, I I I reached out to the lab in Prosser recently, but now because the borders (laughs) shut down, um, I don't know how I like, yeah, that lab hasn't got back to me because I wanted to, I actually wanted to test some other sites. So yeah, we yeah we did do some looking into labs this summer and found out uh, pretty much what you found out, which was very limited capacity locally. However, mm-hmm. in conversations that Gail and I have had recently with Tiana Dupont in Washington, they are offering to help um, establish sort of a, an accreditation type program for Western X and Little Cherry Virus with labs that want to participate in that. So we're okay. really hoping we can encourage some local labs to get on board with that so that mm-hmm. we can build mm-hmm. capacity. Uh, because I, I suspect you're right, Tamara, that when you start to go looking at some of these difficult trees that you can't get a clear diagnosis on, that we may start to see more show up than mm-hmm. initially thought. <laughs> so flag those suspects because uh, I'm doing the same. I, I definitely would like to see some increased testing. And people just to do the surveys. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the thing about the yellowing peach trees and nectarines was there was another reason why most of those blocks were sort of yellow anyway, and it was because of the pH. But once we got all of the, the sulfur out and stuff like that, and saw some turn very <clears throat> yellow to green, we then it started assuming that when you saw yellow trees, it was because of that. But if somebody had been out actually surveying and seeing where that was the case and where it wasn't, we would, we would have been on this a long time ago. But nobody was. You have yeah, to, that's a really good point. I think you have it. I mean, these are issues that affect the industry as a whole. It's not just, obviously, it's not. I mean, our yeah. focus here is, is organic, but this is this is important for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And Linda, I just one of the things that's interesting about your comment too there is um, symptoms that may present as a disease are often nutrition. And both of you have referred a lot to nutrition. Where does where does nutrition start? What's what's the basis of a good nutrition program? What the soil what the roots are living in, mainly. That's the main one. Um, if you have a high pH soil and then and, and the pH of the soil. And if you have a high pH soil, you're going to, even though your soil has lots of zinc, it doesn't, it's in a form that plants can take it up. So that's why we applied the, the, the zinc spray. What, what was the question again? Uh, just the question about um, crop nutrition. And you've answered the portion about the soil being of primary importance. Yeah. And, 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 and testing. 
thank you. I think that's yeah. exactly what I yeah. want to go to. Yeah. So maybe yeah, like what but about not testing just well? soil testing because not and I and I yeah I mean soil testing coupled with foliar testing or fruit wit testing or saps. You know, there's there's different um, there's different ways to do this but but like sampling the soil but also sampling the tissue and seeing what the plants are actually taking up also there's some good resources in the visual visual symptoms of nutrition deficiencies too so again it's it's learning and education and testing excellent and and will you be covering those sorts of topics in the manual updates as well yes yes excellent how soon do you think the updated manual will be released well, hopefully by the end of the winter, we'll, we'll have it done, I would expect, by January. And we have to find And then we'll go through the editing mm-hmm. and yeah, the yeah. selecting photos and platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there'll be some work. So hopefully soon. <laughs> Don't want to commit and to how, a date. <laughs> this winter, how like, will growers access the manual? Will it be available for purchase through COABC again? No, we we want to do it online. But if you point out where we are... We're not getting paid to do this, so it's not a money maker for us. Um, the CABC gave up ownership of it to us, but we could do what we wanted. But we put it online and find somebody who can do that for us. <clears throat> There's a couple of organic organizations that have even offered to help with the editing, and uh, and also I should mention Mario Lance uh, has a huge, huge, wonderful collection of pictures. And we're thinking of putting more pictures in, you know, not just to have one part of the book with, with colored pictures, but when you talk about a pest, you have a picture of the pest right in that, that category. So that'll, that'll be a whole new thing as well. Excellent. So this really is a labor of love from both of you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me today for this conversation. It's, been wonderful and also I feel like there's so much more information we could cover so hopefully once you have gone to publication perhaps we can come back and discuss some of the uh, details that are found in the manual but big thanks to both of you for taking the time today I just want to give an opportunity if there's any last words of wisdom you'd like to share or anything you want to say before we sign off no I think I've said most of the things I wanted to say (laughs) Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, basically, I'm Thanks, gonna... Molly. All right, that's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Aubin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. Eckel is spelled E A K L E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. And one more time, tickets are now on sale for the 2022 conference. Head to organicbc.org conference for more details. Okay, everyone. I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon.